Welcome to The Girlfriend God, a podcast in search of and in service to the divine feminine, bringing you an equal mix of academic research and emotional spiritual experience. If you enjoy this podcast, be sure to subscribe, follow, rate it, review it, and share it with your friends. Now, together, let's find the divine. Okay, welcome to another episode of The Girlfriend God First. Today's episode, I'm fortunate to be joined by our guest co-host, Dominique Bryant-Williams, the community organizer for Woman Spirit Reclamation. Dominique, welcome back. And today, I know we're both really excited to welcome Max Dashu to the show. Max founded the Suppressed Histories Archives in 1970 to research and document global women's history. She built a collection of 15,000 slides and 30,000 digital images and has created 150 visual talks on female cultural heritages from the most ancient times to the present. She's an internationally known expert on ancient goddess iconography, matricultures, and female spheres of power, patriarchy, and allied systems of domination, medicine women, female shamans, witches, and the witch hunts. She's also the author of Witches and Pagans, Women in European Folk Culture, and she's just recently published Women in Greek Mythography. I knew I was going to struggle with that. (laughs) And in 2024, she'll release Women's Power in Greek Patriarchy, Priestesses, Amazons, and Witches, All of these books belong to a 15-volume series called The Secret History of Witches. A 15-book series. I have to say, that is indeed impressive. And let me just say, Max, I think I can speak for both myself and Dominique when I say, for us, you are a legend. (laughs) So well. (laughs) With that, Max, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for inviting me. You know, it, it's funny about the the volumes because it was going to be a book, but what were chapters turned into volumes because as I uncovered more things, it, it just had to keep splitting and splitting. And it's it's actually up to 16 now because even just this one, which is volume two, the Hellenic material, right. uh, it came up past 800 pages and I knew I had to cut it in half. So it's book one and book two, volume two is. <laughs> I have trouble writing just one let alone yeah. <laughs> 15, 16. Um, so I, I think that's fantastic. I, uh, I Dominique asked, sent me a list of questions and there's some things I want to ask you about, but before we get into that, I want to ask you about, um, I've talked a lot lately with women. I know how important it is that we create this intergenerational dynamic. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really poignant that today in recording this episode, there are three generations of us women mm-hmm. who are goddess seekers, who are goddess spirituality seekers, who are history seekers. And I'm wondering about your thoughts on that. Do you, do you agree that uh, this intergenerational learning is important because we have to know our history in order to create better futures, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's been a lot of conversation lately about the interruption 
of the women's movement, the schisms and the um, the cutting off of intergenerational transmission. And uh, there's a book called Hags by Victoria Smith that just came out out of UK. And she's very concerned with this. And I, I know a lot of women in the lesbian community are too, because there's been this absolute rupture, you know, in that transmission in many cases. Um, and, and she notes that while for men, men they have legacy men that they can look up to. You know, there's 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 no challenge to those heroic figures. But for women, she says, instead, what we have is waves of movement that crash and then recede. You know, that there's this there's these cyclic deviations from the movement. And Gerda Lerner, who wrote uh, n- numerous books, uh, The Creation of Patriarchy is one of them. But then she came up with a later book on the creation of feminist consciousness. And she, in studying just the Western civ cultural record, was able to see how women would come forward and bring forward female history, you know, women of the past, uh, you know, would analyze the Bible and all all these foundational texts and try to find the women in them and try to critique the patriarchy in them. And then it would just be dropped. And they would be washed from the record. And then the next generation of women coming up didn't know that this had ever been done before. And they would have to reinvent the wheel again and again and again, as if nothing had ever happened before. So there is this, it's it's a pattern, you know, um, and, and patriarchal backlash has a lot to do with the way that this takes place. And so I feel that it's very important and Currently, I'm looking for uh, younger women to become involved with the suppressed histories archives, because you know I've been at this for a long time, but you know I I want uh, participation. You know I'm looking for volunteers to help us with the. the I have like I don't even know there might be like fifteen thousand uh, Facebook pages that are migrated into our, the website, but we have to create navigation pages and then tag all the content. So what's on there? It's on the site. Nobody can find it because it's just a bunch of numbers. You right. know, the URLs are pff, tell you nothing. Right, right. So that they can put in priestess, goddess, um, you know, woman warrior, whatever it may be, or countries, right, or peoples, and find what they're looking for because it's in there. You know, and what I kind of blog on the Suppress Histories Archives page on Facebook. Mm-hmm. It's a lot easier than making web pages and uploading them. So right, I've been right. doing that since 2010. And there's a huge amount of resources there, but the task of this coming year is going to get that all available to people so they can find what they're looking for. You know, the the Malawian Oracle women and, you know, just so many different amazing archaeological finds and temples and megalithic cultures and in, including this, this uh, Hellenic material I've been working with, which mm-hmm. I have to say, you know, really I came kicking and screaming to this book because uh we all had greece and rome shoved down our throats right you know in the educational system and it's like no no i don't want this and it's so patriarchal but what what i'm trying to do in the entire series which is called secret history of the witches is to bring another angle of view on that cultural record because we need to know the origins of rape culture which i talk about in this book and we need to know the colonizations that happened and the patterns of that that were laid down hero worship, literal hero, hero worship of, of military raiders and slavers and rapists, right? 
who had shrines and ceremonies all over right. the Greek world, you know, and how that set a pattern for Tom Cruise movies, you know, the whole culture of first dime novels, then comic books, movies, you know, all of the uh, adventure dramas and the kinds of narratives, James Bond, James Bond movies, you know, with girl on each arm, girl in quotes. Uh, so if we try to center women, and it's difficult because the reason I use the word mythography is that mythology, I, I just wanted, again, a different angle. Uh, it's not only what's written, but it's also all the depictions, the whole entire cultural record, not just what elite men wrote, but images of the water divinities. Sorry about that. Nava, can you get that? You're going to have to edit that out. That's okay. <laughs> um, uh, there, there, are, there are other images, you know, and what was popular among the common people. So the Olympian gods, you know, that's all over. We see that that's what's shoved down our throat. Right. Even under brand names, you know, or the Olympics or marathons, all these references back to Greek civilization. But what they don't show us is the positive images. And in terms of the goddesses, this is really important because the Olympians are not the whole story. Right. There's an older generation of deities that go back very deep in time. Are you hearing that buzzing in the background? He's now weed eating. I can move. Oh, no. Okay, good. Um, no, you're good. And, I, I, you know, and I, I hear what you're saying, Max, because I... I hear what you're saying, just because I know a lot of this. And uh, I'm often shocked when people really don't have any idea that there's a mythological record beyond the Greco-Roman mythology. Yeah. Like, there are mythologies all over the world. And as you say, <laughs> mythologies that extend back much uh, to a much earlier time period and things that get that get lost in the shuffle, right? Like you mentioned the Olympics, and um, whenever the Olympics come on, I'm always like, do you know the Olympic flame is a nod to the goddess Hestia? And people are like, what? <laughs> well, and not only that, but the first Olympic races. So the name comes from Olympia in Western Greece, okay, right. in the province of Elis. The first races in Olympia were girls racing for Hera. The oldest temple at Olympia was of Hera. Zeus's temple didn't come till 150 years later. Okay. And so uh, then later the men horn in and that's okay. They can have their races, but they would alternate years because this was like an, an innovation. Right. And, and this is just one of the many things that is not known about where things originate. In the case of the deities, my first chapter is called Titanides, which means female titans. And the Titans, which you've probably heard of, are referred to as the old gods or the former gods. Right. Theoi proteroi in Greek. And they are nature divinities. They don't have the same patriarchal narrative. There's a few pieces of in it because it gets strained through uh, classical patriarchal sources. But uh, this is this is where I, I what I took as my starting point. You know, and I do also analyze you know, what Hera was like before, she, you know, what uh, Jane Harrison calls her the conquered but never submitted native princess, something to that effect. You know, the Indo-European invasions laid over the indigenous cultures of mainland Greece and what happened there, right? But 
the the Titanides are really interesting because these are cosmogonies. They're they about the birth of the universe and origin stories. And so we have uh house, which is the great void that is like the source of all being, who parthenogenetically gives birth to nooks, night. And night is this very important figure uh that I talk about at length, some very interesting um philosophies around her as an oracular figure as a uh, as a mother of all the deities and then from her come earth and heaven and sea well actually it's earth and earth gives birth to heaven and sea that's the way it goes but anyway uh these titanitas are fascinating and the imagery of them especially in the old black figure paintings is really interesting because you will see thetis who's a really important figure in these philosophies as a woman driving a chariot and she has dolphins in either hand because she is the head of the nereids she's she's got her 50 sisters of the the sea goddesses and she is a creatrix in the oldest sources so we have like in the, around 700 this poet in sparta named alcman there are fragments that survive of his work. And he talks about her as a creatrix who in the beginning laid out Poros, the way, and Tecmor, the destination. And there's a lot of other translations for those terms. But she is a creator figure who in other legends referred to in the Iliad also saves Zeus. So he owes her one, but he betrays her because there's a prophecy that one of her offspring will be more powerful than him. And, and there's this legend, this patriarchal line of overthrow. So Kronos overthrows his father, Uranus, and then Zeus overthrows Kronos. And now Zeus is looking over his shoulder, thinking that any following divinity of enough power could overthrow him. So he plots to bring down Thetis. And I talk about that in another chapter called the myths of conquest because he he wants to basically make sure that her child will not be fully divine so he forces her into a captivity marriage with a mortal you know and right. so there's this way mythically that thetis begins as this really powerful being and is brought low and subjugated under the Olympian gods. And this is the story we hear of from the, the uh, Iliad, you know, where she goes supplicating at the feet of Zeus. And, right. but, but there is one part there where Achilles reminds Zeus that he owes a favor to Thetis because it was she who saved him and brought the hundred-handed Briareos to protect him and free him from his bonds. And so he owes her a boon. One might ask, however, if that is the case, why was, you know, if, if wait, I, leave that part out, never mind. I don't want to go into too much detail. <laughs> but, um, I'm, I'm also often surprised, not just that people don't know that there's other mythology, but that people don't know that there are um, thousands of other creation stories and creation myths outside yeah, yeah. of. But, you know, I'm also coming from the Midwest and living in Christian nation central. So right. um, things might be a little different elsewhere. Um, I grew up in Illinois, you know. <laughs> yes, I did know that. 
Um, but yeah, but, it's, but but you were in Chicago, right? No, West Chicago, very different. Oh, West Chicago, out okay. there by Geneva, little gotcha. railroad town. Uh, yeah, the thing about what you're saying that's that's really interesting is that both with the Greeks and the Norse, when I really did these deep dives into the mythic material, the way it's presented to us, like when you pick up a book, whether it's a really high level college book or even, you know, the, the stories, mythology, Greek mythology for the kids, they make it seem like there is just this set narrative. This is the mythology. This right. is what it looks like. But in reality, there are all these wild variations and some of them are regional right and have to do with particular ceremonies in that that city or that that part of greece and others are just completely different stories so this is one of the things that you know we have to realize how how mediated everything that comes to us is there are clearly going to be huge chunks missing that we can't recover but my task in this book was to dig out the nuggets of things that survive, you know, the oracular women. There, there's a whole thing about oracles of Gay, who is later called Gaia, the Earth Mother. And, you know, that's just like a really uh, a substratum of culture that's pretty much disregarded. You know, the scholars aren't really interested in that. Mm. You know, yeah, Max, I just want to jump in. Um, I, I love what you're saying about, you know, kind of the roots that you uncovering Greek mythology because um, I'm a mixed race person and uh, I have African ancestry. So I do really dive into like African mythology, but I always ask myself, like I'm still very drawn to Greek mythology and Roman mythology. And I kind of ask myself why, but I really think it's because this is the culture that I'm indoctrinated in, right? Like I'm trying to unpack the roots of the culture that I've grown up surrounded by because when you look into the deeper mythologies of greek mythology you actually start to see the layers of the stories that we've been encultured under so i find that really fascinating and really exciting actually this this is why against all much of my inclination i finally just dug into to do this book because it is an act of decolonization you know, even from the European side to see that there's this other history. And of course, we have the deep history, Maria Gimbutas, you know, uh, the old Europe archaeology. And um, and I've done research on this as well myself, you know, and certainly the Cretan. I don't really go that deep into the Cretan material in this book because that's a whole book in itself. I'm going to have that as a visual presentation instead. But in, I mean, one of the things that happens in researching this, and I'm looking at the Ceramic painting is a really important part of the cultural record for the Greek world. And it's very interesting because first you have the Mycenaeans and their culture in many ways resembles that of Crete. Uh, There turns out the genome researchers have discovered in the last five years that they are related ethnically to the Cretans. It wasn't just Indo-Europeans on the mainland and indigenous Cretans on the island. They had a shared probably language as well as bloodline and they had uh, also cultural differences because the mainland Cretes, uh, mainland Greeks have step ancestry. There is like, you know, the Indo-European uh, invasions coming in, in from, the, from the direction of Ukraine that colonize. And maybe they weren't even the first, maybe the proto-Greeks weren't even the first layer of invasions 
you know, because that's pretty late. 2200 BCE is when they think they came in. But Crete was on an island. And so they were protected from a lot of the military madness of the Bronze Age. The sea protected them. And they were actually a, a sea power, a trading uh, society. But so these Mycenaean societies conquer Crete and, you know, you have this very domination-based culture. The Mycenaeans are slave raiders as well as traders. So I talk in the book about enslavement and particularly women in Asia. And they're named, you know, the women from Lesbos, the women from Asua, which is, you know, the, the word Asia actually comes from a Hittite word for Northwestern Anatolia. And so there's this whole, this whole traffic and slaving going on. But then the militarization, basically they imploded. What they call the sea peoples that included the Mycenaeans collapse. And they bring down the Ugaritic civilization. They bring down the Hittite empire. Egypt survives, but it loses its imperial provinces in Asia. And then there's this gap, you know, which they refer to as, an, as, as a dark age. But there's just not a lot of cultural uh, activity visible for a couple hundred years. And then there comes up what they call the geometric period, named after a style of ceramic painting that begins around 1000 BCE. And from somewhere between 900 and 800, 900 and 700, a style of ceramic painting comes up that's really fascinating because there's now, instead of just geometric patterns, there's human figures. And a lot of them are funerary scenes. And women were very prominent in the morning. So you'll see women with their arms raised above their head in the same morning gesture that we see in the Mycenaean larnakes, the coffins, the ossuaries. And here's the thing about it. As I'm looking at this imagery, I'm seeing African profiles on the people. The style of representation of the human figure with the shoulders forward, the head in profile, and the body again turned sideways, that's an African, that's an African motif, which is visible not only in Egyptian art, where the men and women are always very slim, but even more so in the older Saharan rock art tradition, including that of Libya, where a Libya in particular has a style that looks closer to this Greek geometric figure painting than anything else in the world. The uh, women have locks or twists on their heads, right? And there are just a variety of indicators. Sometimes they even have naps, okay? You know, it's just like the older, the older style really shows that somehow Libyan people had cultural input into Greece in this period. And this is a period where they're like, there's nothing being written. They've lost linear B. We don't have anything written. We only have the archeological record. But here's the interesting thing. So first I notice this Libyan connection in the archeology, span you know, and I don't know what the genome is gonna say. So far, I haven't found any genomic connection. It may be that this was really only a cultural influence, you know? But um, the other thing is that Greek literature talks about a Libyan migration into Argos. And this is a family of sisters, 50 sisters. So this is kind of a mythic number. The Danaides, the daughters of Danaos, who is the king of Libya. And there's a cycle of plays about them that Aeschylus and other Greek dramatists wrote about this. There's various references to it. And they come from Africa, and seek refuge in Argos because they are going to be forcibly married to the 50 sons of Aegyptus, the 
king of Egypt. And so they're fleeing a forced marriage. So um, some of those plays are lost, but there's one called The Suppliants that survives. And I analyze this in uh, chapter two. But there's even more because the name, the Danaides, as they're called in, in the playwrights, but in older sources, the Danaoi are also named in the Iliad and other texts of the epic cycle. So there's like several different names for the Greeks. Nobody called themselves Mycenaeans. They're either the Achaioi or the Danaoi or the, what's the other one? Like blanking out on it. Uh, I'll come to me later. But anyway, it turns out that these names, particularly the Tanayu or the Danan, are mentioned in Egyptian inscriptions as early as the 14th century BCE. So they knew these Greeks, and they are definitely Greeks because the names, the place names that they are in connection with are names for Sparta, names for uh, different parts of Greece, and it, right next door to mentions of the Cretans. So there are real people that had this name. And then there's this whole mythologizing around it. By the time you get to the classical playwrights, that they are talking about these as being Libyan women. And in, in the play, the suppliants, the king of Argos, looks at them and says, I think you are African women. You are not like us Greeks. You know, so there's this literary testimony and as well as inscriptional testimony to the Danoi or the Danaides. And so there again, you have one line of evidence from the archaeology, a very African-looking style, another line of evidence from the written records saying, oh yeah, we think some Libyans came here and they became, they founded a dynasty in Argos, which had already really, it was one of the longest inhabited cities in Greece. So this is kind of a different angle. I mean, you're probably familiar with the book Black Athena, and his thesis in that book was that Egyptians had colonized Greece at a very early period, like maybe around 2000 BCE or so. Um, and his linguistic That's evidence is very dodgy. But I'm I'm saying that there was an African influence, just not the one he thought. <laughs> Basically, right. to it down. With the scientific research now and more and more studies on genomes and DNA, and I, I think that we'll find more of that, that things that well, that's what happens with history, right? I mean, we yeah. we learn more and then things we once thought were true are replaced with another thing that we then think is true. Like the whole, like the, just as a, a simple example, you know, for decades, I was taught that, um, that Mesopotamia was the cradle of civilization. Right. Now they're not so sure about that. No, now standing narratives get overthrown. Right. You know, now they think, so you know, Anatolia and, and Turkey and yeah. Siberia as the birth of a lot of things. And uh, yeah. It's and just, not to forget Egypt and Sudan. <laughs> right. It's interesting to see how that changes over time. So, which is kind of a, you know, makes me kind of question everything, right? I mean, I'm from the generation yeah. of, you know, I was raised to believe my mother always told me, don't believe anything you hear and only half of what you read. <laughs> Good for her. I love that. There's this site in Turkey 
and they call it Gobekli Tepe, which means like pot bellied. It's this big mound. And they unearthed this huge array of like sculptures and pillars and buildings. And they date back to almost 12,000 years ago. And that new information, I think this was discovered maybe the late 90s, I don't know, but that discovery put into question where is the cradle of civilization and I find that super fascinating and it's also interesting because there's this one pillar there and it's called pillar 43 and it, they call it the vulture stone and it depicts a vulture like pointing to a sun and then there's like a scorpion beneath it and so they think it was showing uh, like how the sky looked when a certain event happened they think maybe it was showing mm event I'm not quite sure maybe like what happened uh they called the younger Dryas where there was this huge ice age that like really kind of jacked up civilization but it's just interesting like I'm really drawn to vultures I'm also drawn to the vulture headed goddesses that I have seen in your archive and so it's just interesting the way the information is always shifting and I look yeah. at those pillars and they they feel like messages and you wonder like, what is this message, you know? And how do I connect that to my life? How do we, how do we read it? You know, how do we read it? And, and, exactly. you know, it's like a lot of this is pattern recognition too, because like say the theme of the vulture, right? Where does that turn up elsewhere? And, and in the comedic culture, I mean, we see, we see those pre-dynastic vulture headed goddesses, right? And then later there's Nechabet, who is a vulture, vulture goddess, but the word mut in comedic, means both mother and vulture you know so you have to have a hieroglyphic radical added to the character for each of them to distinguish which is meant but you know there's their homophones i guess you could say the thing about gobekli tepe and really all of this i mean uh there it has so much to do with the presumptions of the european especially the british archaeologists that were excavating and looking at all of this and you know, they had this idea of great civilizations, where is the point of superiority from which all these things emerge? You know, they want to name it that way. It really kind of blew their minds when they discovered, because one of the one of the received dogmas had become that civilization comes through agriculture and, you know, that you can't have, quote unquote, high culture without that. And then here's Gebekli Tepe, who are foraging society they're not doing agriculture right they're you know so they're they're hunting they're gathering and that that changes the narrative just as you know we could we could look at some other societies in the world that are really complicated that farming civilization story like the pacific northwest where they had very rich and stratified societies who were again foraging you know they were fishers they were hunters they you know they were not farmers so the assumptions you know it's it constantly just i felt like when i began doing this research i had to question everything you know it was like it's all patriarchal narratives it's all colonial there's all this racism pervading the way everything is looked at so that some of the societies where women's status was actually the highest are totally ignored whoever heard of sumatra and the Manankabao people you know, when I began my research, it took a real while for me to locate where these major cultures were actually located. But inevitably, they're located in places that we're never told about in what they give us of history. Nobody's looking at Tanzania. 
Nobody's looking at Malawi, you know, as far as the dominant historical picture is concerned. You know, so, so there's I, several different no, because there's the archaeological, there's the rock art, and then there's also indigenous orature. When you go to the library, if you're looking for Tanzania, then you get in there and you see there are all these colonial reports about where the offices were established and where the the metals could be mined and what other resources could be extracted, you know, taxation, all these things, um, but not an interest in the peoples and their historical narratives. So for that, you have to go to a different part of the library and see if you can dig something up out of the ethnographers who have their own biases. You know, a lot of times I would find an amazing story about uh, some first woman, you know, the foundational female cultural hero or ancestral woman, and I'd find just a piece of it. And then it could be like 25 years later, I'd find the rest because they had only highlighted part. They weren't really interested. Joe Marler talks about how Maria Gimbutas, when she was on archaeological excavations, actually witnessed a, a male archaeologist pick up one of the female figurines and throw it over the edge of the site because it was just, you know, he wasn't interested in that. You know, they wanted, right. they, they're all, they love to catalog the, the flint points and, you know, <laughs> lots of numbers. But, you know, she was interested in what the mythic narratives of those societies were. What, what, what were the what was the cultural content? Not only the technological. Dominique, um, there was something else that you. I've lost my list now, because I, I closed too many windows. Um, <laughs> you had mentioned uh, that you wanted to ask about oh pre-dynastic Kemetic priestesses. Max, can you speak to that? Or Dominique, do you have a specific question? Well, she did mention them a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. they, they do have the vulture-headed women and goddesses. I think I'm just so curious about that period because those were some of the images that were most striking to me. Um, that pottery that depicts, um, they're called the invoking women and they have mm -hmm. their hands over their head like this. Yeah, yeah. And I'm just so drawn to them. I don't I don't know what exactly it is. I think, you know, they have a lot of them had Afro hair. Most of them had Afro mm -hmm. hair and they're doing this shape. And mm -hmm. it just kind of gave me this message of like, oh, my gosh, like we've always been here. And they're literally invoking like they're in these. I don't want to say this isn't hierarchical, but they're in like a high position, a spiritual position. And they're doing I don't know what, but. I'm just so drawn to the pre-dynastic comedic priestesses, the vulture, to hear you comment on uh, the word for vulture also meaning mother without the certain intonation. I'm just finding that so fascinating. And a big reason for that is I see vultures all the time. And I've even like, I've been, I go to Glendora to dog sit and I, I'm like right by the hills and the vultures love to be by the hills because all the nature is there. And sometimes the vultures will come out and they'll circle and I'll be outside and I'll be dancing and I'll be playing music. And the vultures will literally like swoop in. This has happened. They like come to times. see. They're, 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 they're seeing the energy. It's like, what's this going on? Let's take it, check it out, you know? <laughs> and I just love it. Like I've even seen like almost 20 vultures like gathering and circling. And that didn't, that felt more like in the distance. But yeah, it was just yeah. so, 
I'm in awe, especially the fact that they've been so significant for thousands of years, you know, and we don't, we don't revere vultures in our cultures anymore. So. Yeah. You know, it's, I don't know if you saw, I do have a taste of the pre-dynastic visual talk on YouTube. So there's like maybe 12 minutes or something. I, I saw have a full, I saw I have the full presentation on stream, stream on demand on the suppress histories portal over on teachables that you can see it. Um, but in there, I talk about, there's actually, I think I came up with five lines of evidence for these invoking women. There is rock art of them. There's, of course, the figurines that we've talked about here. There's very importantly, the painted pottery, what they call the D-ware pottery, between 4000 and 3000 BCE. Multiple instances of these invoking women. And, you know, just a sidebar on that, because the the what I was trying a point I was trying to make in the woman shaman DVD that I made is we can't really tell if it's intended to be a divinity, a priestess calling in the divinity, or even an ancestral woman. You know, though the borderlines to that are very narrow, and to some degree, how can we even draw such a line? Because if the priestess is calling the goddess into her body, then you know what difference does that really make? You know, I mean, it's just a completely different cultural uh, approach to it. But um, there are also images of the women in uh, murals. And I think there's one painted linen that also has this motif. So it's very, very widespread through different media. It's, it's, it's like, I would say it's the key image, along with a lot of the animals, of course, of pre-dynastic comedic culture. It's fascinating what 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 comes up when we research and, you know, back to the beginning of our conversation about this intergenerational learning. I feel like that's been part of the the disconnect, right, because we've literally been changing our brains over time. And with each generation, they have shorter and shorter attention spans and everything's on a screen. And mm -hmm. so those of us who like to do that kind of research, I feel like we're a dying breed. But of course, then I made somebody like Dominique, who is very into doing her own research and, and reading. But I feel like that's kind of that that women like you, Dominique, are kind of few and far between. But you also know I'm kind of curmudgeon about these things, just <laughs> based on what I see where I live and having been in, in academia and just all of that. I, you know, I'm trying to be more hopeful that young people will you know, the women I've been talking to lately, we reminisce about having to go to the library and do our own research and find our own things rather than just Googling something and getting what may or may not be relevant in information. And I I just, I, I want to say, what do I want to say? When we talk about, you know, was this uh, a depiction of a goddess or a priestess invoking a goddess or just a woman who had a position of spiritual authority in a particular tribe or a particular people? Um, so the book that I'm currently working on is about the goddess Ellen of the Ways, which that's a whole other discussion about whether she is, in fact, a goddess or my argument, which is that she's just a collection of, of tropes and symbolisms that cross millennia like I didn't know until I started researching that that there was this uh book that was obviously somebody's um dissertation about the 
the deer goddess of ancient Siberia. And what I learned in the deer goddess of ancient Siberia is that, and of course I can't think of names and dates off the top of my head, um, but there were these depictions of what is obviously a female character with with horns. Yeah. Um, and, I'm trying to think of the name of that author. The woman I, that yeah, I can't it. think of her name either. Yeah, I, say, I cannot bring it up, uh, but I know who you mean. But well, it's just so fascinating. And, and I think we've touched on this a, a little bit here today, right? That if you look hard enough, everything is cyclical and everything is cross-cultural. Uh, or maybe not everything is cross-cultural, but a lot of stuff is, right? Like the basis of a creation myth is the same no matter what the creation myth is. The basis of, uh, you know, the Santa Claus is a good example, right? There's not just the, the Santa Claus that we know in American culture. That is a myth that goes back from millennia and also crosses many different cultures. And I think a lot of these things, like I said, if we do the research and we look hard enough, we'll see, oh, this thing existed over here also. And oh, right. I thought this thing originated in in Egypt, but actually it's from Indonesia or whatever. You know what I mean? It's just but there's there's just there's, there's two different ways that that this happens. And there's been big brawls over this in anthropology. Mm -hmm. One is things arising independently, maybe out of some basic human interface with the natural world that, you know, felines have to do with solar power and frogs have to do with lunar, you know, that kind of thing. Right. right. And the other is the diffusionists, which talks about things spreading. And both happen. I think an exclusively exclusive approach of either of those those frameworks is, you know, it, it can become absolutist because a totally diffusionist thing always says, oh, it's got to start someplace and everybody else borrowed it. And then a totally uh, independent arising analysis, you miss out on the fact that there were cultural motifs that spread. Like, for example, the Egyptian sun with wings. And this gets picked right. up by the Hittites and the Mesopotamians. And, you know, there's there's the spread that we can actually track, you know, or or the Halafian culture, very early Neolithic uh, ceramic goddesses that begin in northern Syria and spread out as far as Iran and into Phoenicia, you know, before it was Phoenicia. So, uh, but I want to I go back to what you were saying about the, the digital world, because I think that there is a, a fracturing and a disembodying aspect to it, right? That is really so accelerated. It's it's kind of dangerous to the human neurology. I mean, I'm very neurodivergent, so I feel this myself because right. the other part of it is, I mean, we we're able to connect on Zoom and do this conversation, which would not be possible otherwise unless I had come to Champagne. Right. right, and, right. And um, but I have to say that there's another issue, which is that my research has expanded massively because online research, it's not just the, the really not not author. I don't want to say authoritative, the the dubious kinds of stuff that you see all over the place online, you right. know, but there there are scholars that are publishing their work open access and you're getting really high quality detailed analysis, including right. studies by native scholars of indigenous cosmology and history or uh, also the images. Because 
one of the problems that I faced, you know, starting in the, the just a year of 54 years ago in the fall of 1969, and I began scanning around the planet looking, where are women free? And, you know, where are there other cultural models? Because we were, I mean, I left college because my anthropology professor told me there is no society in which men do not dominate. You know, that was dogma and it still is dogma in right. a lot of um, those settings. So um, I was I was looking at, at books, but everything is mediated. And especially then, it's much, much better now in, in publication. Everything is mediated through gatekeepers. It's the author. It's the illustrations they pick. It's the editor. And, you know, what's going to be the big color plates, you know, and especially this is true of the overarching studies. Like, in you know, in that period, there was like the dawn of man you know, and the big color pictures of warriors and kings, dynasts. And maybe they'd have a little tiny black and white photo of a female figurine, but nothing that was important, you know. And so the bias of the gatekeepers has been really uh, a huge thing. Right. And so I have found so many more images from the uh, agri the archaeology of the Niger Delta, the inland delta of the Niger in Mali, uh, various different cultural traditions. So I've been able to just increase my archives by leaps and bounds instead of like going to the library, dragging the book home, taking a copy camera, taking the film in, developing it, bringing it back, stripping the slide and labeling it. I drag a, a, a JPEG to my desktop and then I label it. And, you know, sometimes I have to do right. a little more background you know that can take me down a whole rabbit hole because what else is online now that i found right. this site, right but um the other problem with that and this i ran into this recently because i found a really good site about the archaeology of the mound building cultures in the woodlands of eastern north america so that within the whole river system of the ohio you know the whole the whole web the whole tree of these, mm -hmm. these rivers that occupies half the continent. Uh, there were these mound building cultures that had a lot of shared symbolism. And so there are figurines, both in clay and in stone. There are mica and copper platters or bone carved uh, objects. And so I, I'm just like, I found a whole trove and I was downloading it. There are offering pots in the form of animals with kind of a stovepipe neck on the pot, you know, and this is a, a global pattern because we find those in Argentina and Vietnam and Egypt and the Balkans, all these different places, but uh, in the Czech, Czechia. But um, some of the figurines I found, because I'm always looking for those female figurines. Oh, look, here's a new one. And I gradually began to realize, because I had just downloaded them and I, I, I started looking at them and it's like, you know what, this is a fake. So this is our other problem with the online research. There are loads of fakes out there, you know, and there's certain cultures that get picked up on because there is money to be made. Oh, look, you know, we're not really sure where this came from, but, you know, a worker found this in the field somewhere and, you know, let's put it on the market for the collectors to buy an authentic uh, Malian uh, inland Niger Delta figurine, right? And there's also looting going on is the other thing because, desperately impoverished people are selling this stuff to the international collector's market but right. they're not getting the money it's the middlemen mm -hmm. so there are certain areas like uh, northeastern china there are lots of fakes for the hongshan culture 
there are loads of fakes for the Colombian gold workers. And so this is another challenge is that you have to be able to pick that out. And even the museum experts are fooled. And there's been some scandals about this because they find that the Met has things in their collection. It's like, you know what? This is really not authentic. Right. You know, aside from the question of how it was stolen in the first place, you know. Right. The, right. I mean, I, I often say technology is both, you know, I have a love-hate relationship with technology. And I think as as AI continues to grow, hopefully Google will eventually have, I always imagine a, a, a feature of Google where when you Google something, it says, do you want the short answer or the long answer? <laughs> yeah. And then directs you to, you know, varied uh, search results. Yeah, or like the uh, fact the fact check on Twitter where people can challenge and say, you know what, this this object is not authentic. Right, you know? right. Because it, it fools a lot of people. <laughs> it does. Um, so we're at about an hour. I just want to check in and see. I, I know that, Dominique, I know you had a few more questions, and there was one particular thing that I wanted to ask about. Uh, are you good with our time, Max? We can keep going. Okay. So I wanted to ask about female shamans, because that seems to be another area in which we currently, we are indoctrinated, right? The image of the shaman is always as male. But I have read about multiple cultures where uh, the women were shamans. And I wanted to ask you about that, if you could cite us some examples. And I was wondering if there are any tribes or peoples in which strictly the women are shamans yeah okay well that that's a complicated question i mean this is uh you know the medicine women the female oracles the seeresses there's a whole all these these culturally specific names so that there's a controversy around using the word shaman but right because that i know that my, the, the my word position, shaman is actually a, an academic Contract, no, no, well, right? yeah, I mean, it's, it originates in, in the uh, Tungusic cultures of Northeastern Asia, okay? So um, what happened is the anthropologists borrowed that word, or you could say they appropriated it, but they, in European languages, most of the names for these kinds of people had long ago been excised by the witch hunts, you know, and various other persecutions. So they were lacking in language which is why you see the borrowing of a lot of words like mana or taboo, which both come from Pacific cultures, because these are things that all humans experience and have names for, but those names either get lost or else most people don't know what you mean when you say it, right? So uh, I, I made a, a video a DVD called Woman Shaman the Ancients in trying to document just what your question is asking. Because my initial contact with this was through reading Mircea Eliade's book, Shamanism, in the early 70s. And his position was really uh, resolutely sexist. He claimed that shamanism was a male hunter uh, phenomenon that only in its decadence were women allowed into it. And this went against some of his own evidence because he talks about the Wu priestesses in China and the Vuller in Scandinavia, but only to say, well, you know, these are decadent, these are late, this is not the real deal. It's really the male hunter, you know? And so there was there was a lot of problems with his approach, but that's that was a starting point for a lot of people. 
Then you have, um, I mean, I've been doing this research ever since the early 70s and documenting first the North Asian tradition of female shamans, and then looking at instances for, say, the um, the Greek oracles or the witches in Europe under various different names, you know, de-demonizing these figures as the shamans also were in colonial contexts, and uh, trying to see, well, what all is out? What's out there? What can we find? And so, you know, there you have to often look into orature. So, for example, again, in Mali, there are legends of the Soroko people or the Boso people that talk about Pasini Jobu, who was the greatest of the Tungutos. Her power of healing was so great she could even revive from the dead. And so there's a whole story about her. And a similar story that's also told about from Manchuria now part of northeastern China, about Nisan Shaman. So this is a Tungusic-speaking culture, the Manchus. And the word shaman is being used for a woman. Okay, and, and this is, in, in Tungusic, it was, it was a term that could apply either to a male or a female. You know, um, and a lot of those males were um, gender variant as well. So that there is this undertow, uh, or this substratum, we could say, of an idea as Maria Chaplitza uh, heard from a Chukchi woman or Chukchi person uh, when she was up there in the far northeast of Asia, woman is by nature a shaman. This is what the Siberian person told her. So that men who become shamans in a great variety of cultures around the world often take on feminine dress attributes. And even in the case of the Chukchi, speak in the female dialect because they have a male dialect and a female dialect. And so this is also true of the Machi in Chile, in um, the Mapuche culture, predominantly female, but some gender variant males, maybe some other males. Um, and so there are all these patterns to look at. So what I wanted to do is go back through the archaeology and pull together all the images that I had about this and kind of put them all together and make, make a, a movie from it. And in doing that, it was really interesting because what I was saying before about pattern recognition, this really came up. I had this whole collection and I was sort of sorting them thematically. And I was surprised to find, I probably shouldn't have been with the witch's wand, but staffs was a major, major theme that occurs in Southern Africa, in Colombia, you know, of course, you got the European examples, but there are many other examples of women with staffs all over the place. And there's a picture of a medicine woman with a staff in one of the Lakota winter calendars, winter count, uh, uh, painted hides. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, we have to look, this is where interdisciplinary study is so crucial for all women's history. But in this case, especially there, there's actually quite a predominance of women's spiritual leaders among the women we know of historically. And so whether we call them medicine women, shamans, uh, strege, vuller, you know, all of these, these different ethnic names, the Makewana of the, the Chewa people in Malawi, then the Wu of China, the Mikogami of Japan, the, the Mudang of Korea. There's countless, countless examples. The Isongoma of Southern Africa. Uh, there's this pattern of women's leadership very often being the spiritual sphere. 
And I did another presentation, which I do have on my Suppress Histories portal, called um, Rebel Shamans, Women Confront Empire. Because there's also this pattern of which the, the, the medicine woman or the seeress who is a leader with responsibility to her people, when they come under conquest or invasion, they rise up and, and often lead the resistance. And so there's just so many examples of that. I first became aware of this pattern when I was making my first DVD, Women's Power and Global Perspective. And I realized that the women who were, I had a section on women who were, who were leaders in these insurrections and revolts against colonial rule, how many of them were called spirit diviners or priestesses or what what have you. And so I started a new show. At that time, I could pick out maybe about 38 examples of women, which could include for example Joan of Arc you know she was a, she was a dreamer you know she within a catholic framework but a peasant folk culture had visions of saints who were telling her you're going to go you're going to go save france you have to go fight against the english invaders you know and she was accused of being a witch early on as well as her final execution even before she was allowed to become an advisor to the king and the french resistance they forced her to undergo an examination by a midwife to determine that she was in fact a virgin because if she wasn't that would mean she was a witch right sex with the devil so um there's just all these examples and finally what i wound up was a visual talk that is so huge i can't even fit everything in it anymore because that pattern is so so pronounced you know but yeah, there's, there's these groupings of, of themes that we can start to pick out, you know, whether it's the sacred mirror or the bundle of herbs held in the hand. And you see this in Yoruba culture. You see it just over a whole wide expanse. The ancient Greek uh, ceramic paintings, there's a whole theme of women either line dancing or round dancing. And their hands are joined and in their joined hands are fronds of greenery. And this starts in the Mycenae and it goes all the way up to about 600 BCE. And then it stops. Fascinating. Yeah. So Don't there's me. illustrations of that in my book, Women, Women, uh, Women in Greek Mythography, full title, uh, Pythias, Melissae, and, Pharma and, and Titanides. So um, I'm looking a lot at the oracular women, particularly in the last chapter there, the Oracle of Delphi. The black doves, uh, the Paleotis of uh, Dodona, up in, near the Albanian border, when that was that oak grove up in the wild mountains was said to be the oldest oracle in Greece. So, you know, uh, yeah. Not to cut you off, but I wanted to ask you. I wanted to go into the rebel shaman. I wanted to ask about dreams and the significance of dreams. Uh-huh. So can I share content real quick? Oh yeah. Let me uh oh it's oh, okay. Thank you. So I was watching one of your videos, Max, and I didn't actually know you were an artist when I found your archives, but uh you shared a bunch of your art in this video and I was oh, really that new joint. Yeah. yeah yes which I love I was like oh my god there's even more and now there's art by you 
<laughs> so I want to share one of the art pieces that I screenshotted because it really speaks to this theme of dreams that I've been looking at. Those are my notes. Uh huh. So here it is. This oh yeah. Is, How should it be otherwise? <laughs> I love this, and it actually <laughs> reminds me of a dream that I had. So I had a dream. Oh, that's my dog growling. I had a dream that was actually really disturbing. First, I was quiet pups. First, I was like in, I was cornered off in a clearing and there was another girl with me. There was a whole bunch of people with me and all of a sudden we were being shot up and I saw the girl get shot right in front of me. Mm. And then, yeah. And then in the next part of my dream, I was in what felt like a Catholic church and I heard this priest narrating like his life almost like with such self-importance and grandeur but I knew (laughs) that this priest was like a terrible abuser just based on my own dream context and so it was a very disturbing dream and I ended up running out of the church and I ended up on a big bridge and from my left came this lion-faced goddess and she just was huge and she started destroying the, the the everything she was destroying the building and so it felt really symbolic of kind of like this militarism and this patriarchal religion being mm-hmm. destroyed showing like the horror of it but like this goddess appearing and just wrecking it and saying oh this is enough and so I love this piece by you I'm just gonna read for conquerors have ever tightened their grip as they hatefully crushed the vastly ancient way that mothered our ancestors, crushed it from women's hearts. But blind are they who have aimed at destruction of source life. Blind indeed, for there surrounding them, unseen, world the world, world the worlds of witching, known as the dream time. For power is never lost in truth, life never extinguished. So I love this piece. Um, I'm going to stop sharing screen. I wondered if you could just talk about the power of dreams a little bit. Yeah. Well, you know, even that drawing was a kind of dreaming, you know, I, I was in a period, you know, I'd only been doing this research for three years at that point. And I, uh, it was just kind of pouring out through my pen, you know, like I was dreaming. It was, it was a waking dream of dreaming worlds in which women are free, which there, you know, the, the relationality was still intact. The web of life was, was vibrant and respected. You know, there was, there was no, there's no cutting through all of that, you know, no, no crushing of that because, uh, you know, that to me, I mean, I was walking in a totally man-made world. I had nothing. You know, you're just struggling to keep a roof over your head. Everything's paved, you know, getting, I mean, I longed with all my heart to be on the land and to walk in the forests and the mountains and by rivers. And it was really hard for me to get to those places, but I would hitchhike out to do that, you know, and uh, just try to get on the land as much as I could, because that was unmediated reality. It was not man constructed. You know, and this whole this whole Euro conquest paved over reality here in North America, where, you know, it's just like it's so uh, not only antithetical to nature, but anti-nature, you know, really destructive of of the biosphere. And so uh, that 
was a dreaming because I it was I was kind of you know playing around with comics you know graphic novels I guess we could call it now because they weren't supposed to be funnies but um to really address what happened you know how did patriarchy come about did, how do women resist it you know how were we subjugated you know what are the means through which that can be overthrown so that piece came out of that sensibility and also there's a, a little bit of a comic book sensibility in that and some of the earlier stuff i did because i used to i used to love comic books i read comic books and so there's a certain kind of a ironic style like in the language of that that's um kind of over dramatized you know uh my witch dream comic which i did published in 1976 uh, has a lot of that and I'm I'm going to do another show on that eventually, you know, that will be included in the show that's more about my graphic uh, design and uh, political posters and that kind of stuff. But um, that visualization, the re-envisioning of other cultural possibilities, other cultural worlds for ourselves is a dreaming. Yes. You know. Wow. Thank you. Thank you so much. That is just so rich. And, I love uh, that you love that one, by the way. I mean, that was just, you know, that was all my heart was in that. You know, if I had to do it over again, I mean, dream time, I would not have used the word dream time, which really has, you know, cultural specificity to uh, Aboriginal Australians. But, you know, it was it's such an evocative term because, you know, it is we need names in our language also uh, to describe these these deep layers of reality, you know, not just the surface crust that's created by, you know, a uh, capitalist production system, you know, and the, the media framing of what humans are and can be, and especially women, but, uh, you know, to just really go deep and find what, what's that cross historical reality of human humanity, you know, or even just the consciousness that's embedded in all being the stones, the trees, all, all the beings, you know, animacy is what Robin Wall Kimmerer calls it. The Potawatomi. She's a botanist, but I think of her as a philosopher. Hmm. <laughs> so I think I have to call it Max. I think we could listen to you for three hours, four, yes. five, like we're in a lecture hall. <laughs> but, um, I was trying to think if I had any final questions, but nothing's coming to mind. But I don't know if you've listened to the show or not, Max, but at the end of every show, uh, for guests who haven't been on before, I ask everybody the same three questions. Are you ready for that? This is the fun part. I mean, it's all fun, but this is the really fun part. <laughs> all right. So first question, tell us something about yourself that people who know you would be surprised to learn? Oh gosh, this is coming out of left field. I'd have to think about that to really answer it. <laughs> Goodness. <laughs> what don't they know about me? I don't know. I mean, you know, it's just like the people who are close to me. I don't know if there's any secrets really. <laughs> um, don't know. I don't know what to say to that. Some little quirk. Oh, I have lots of quirks, but I think they're <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Give me the other questions. Maybe I'll think of something. Okay. Um, 
so the second question is, what is your current favorite TV series or movie? Okay, so I don't watch television. You know, I tend to like kind of stream things on YouTube. And okay. I'm mostly either streaming music or else I'm streaming uh, history or political stuff. Um, I did like The Diplomat a lot. I saw that on okay. Netflix. Okay. You know, and then it was, I love it was, that show. And it, so it ended with a cliffhanger, and I'm like, no, you know, I had right. to wait a year, and then now they might not even fund the production of the net. That was very well done. And yes. I also really loved La Cocinera de Castamar, which is a Spanish historical um, movie series about a woman who becomes a cook in a noble household, and it's in the 17th century, 17, early 1700s, I guess I would say. Um, okay just really well so i have an answer for you on that okay well i read that the diplomat was renewed for a second season so we just have to Yay. hang just tight have to it out. <laughs> yeah <laughs> um and the third question the final question is if if your life were a movie what would be the theme song on the soundtrack probably a song by zahava ben uh one of her favorite musicians um, Mizrahi music out of it, out of um, the the Arab and um, the, the Arab Jews, North African, West Asian Jews. Okay, um, you have to send me a I, link. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great, great music. Okay, it would definitely be one of those. I could maybe even think of a title if you gave me, if I had more time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, you could send it to me. We've got time. Okay. Um, and I do have a public playlist on Spotify and iTunes of that answer to this question for, I think there's only the first two seasons up there. I've got to put up season three. So this I'll, will get I'll added. I'll ask her and, and get a title for you. How's that? Okay. This will get <laughs> added to that queue. And I have to say, it's quite an eclectic mix, <laughs> as you can imagine. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah, I'm very into ethnomusicology uh, myself, so I have a uh, some playlists on YouTube that kind of span the waterfront there. Okay. Uh, I just sure. want to also mention to people, you know, to to look for my book, Women in Greek Mythography, on on Valletta Press. It's the only place you can get it from because I'm fighting not to have it on Amazon. Oh <laughs> yeah. Okay. Take I wondered. I wondered about that because it does come up. Like when you Google it, it'll come. Just Google again. Um, yeah. Give me the short answer, which of course sent me to Amazon first, but I went to the Valida site and found it there as well. So, yeah, yeah, um, Witches and Pagans is available from other outlets because I sold out the print run, but this one, okay. I, I have two thousand books I want to sell before I kick it over to the online retailers. <laughs> and uh, there, that's book one of the of my series on the Greeks, and the second book is called Women's Power in uh, Greek Patriarchy. And so that's the volume that's going to have the Amazons and various quote-unquote barbarian women that don't fit Greek patriarchal standards. And right. so Medea, Kirke, and all those figures are in there, as well as women philosophers, and we have Aspasia and a lot of other figures like that. And a very, uh, very historical chapter, the book actually kicks off with on greek patriarchy and how that was structured because you know we just have kind of have these generalizations but when you just really get down into the details and see how it was it's a consciousness raiser 
about it, you know the yes. colonization of women, basically. All right, Dominique, any closing thoughts? Just thank you so much. I'm I'm looking forward to hearing more about what was the name of the the comic that you released? Which dream comics? Which dream comics? I'm looking forward to hearing more about that. Uh, yeah, it funny. was, and then it was published. It was published by the Women's Press Collective, Oakland Women's Press Collective, in 1976. And of course, the print run—it's—it's it's like a total collector's item now because maybe there's a few copies out there, but not many. You know. Do you have one? So, <laughs> I do. But I gotta find where my copy is. It's like buried in the archives somewhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Once you I do, have, I, I have would love to see it. Digitally. Yeah. Oh, perfect. It's very much in comic book style, you know. Fence sprang the Amazons. <laughs> right. You know, that that kind of flavor. I love it though. Complete, like complete with ads. Do you, I don't know the old comic books of of the sixties? They would have ads in there about the ninety pound weakling who got sand kicked in his face by the big bully, and how you have to club and you know lift weights in order to build yourself up, and then you can, you know, confront the bully. So I have one is cast in in feminist terms about women fight rate. You know, join your local dojo, learn martial arts, fight back. <laughs> oh, I love it, but it, it's kind of cast in a little bit in that mold, just taking off on that. That's exciting. Um, we're kind of talking about how are we going to get this information, this material out to other generations, and sometimes I feel like mixed media, um, maybe like comic book form, and even like I'm really into storytelling. I'm into video games and also animated um, films and shows. So I think that those mediums might really be able to convey some of the huge collection of work that we are citing from. That's my goal. I mean, I've been yeah. working seven years knocking this book out because yeah. the Greek material was just so vast. That's how long it took. But I really want to do more animated film. And I don't mean like as in the sense of animation, like cartoons, you know, but um, like compositing videos, animating skills. Because I have all these skills that I would like women to see that just kind of not click slide click slide but just to really zoom in and then have the background and have a map here and you know just really showing cultural worlds like that so max i i need to i need to introduce you to dale allen um dale allen have you heard of her yeah, yeah. And she's that's a that's her big thing is video production so she oh. can probably point you in the right direction of how to do the kind of thing kinds of things that you want to do and because yeah. she just did her well, I was on that learning her right with woman trauma but um and the other thing i'm going to do because i do have uh i do have to stay off the computer more <laughs> is i'm mm -hmm. going to start doing more storytelling or recording of audio podcasts just to you know really there's so many subjects to cover and it's like a lot of my work has been in sharing the visual but there are things we don't have visual for. Like, you know, one, the course I'm going to teach next year in 2024 is called Rematriating and Understanding Patriarchy. Because understanding patriarchy, it's like there's something structural that we can name. We can show known patterns of how women's bodies are colonized and the systems mm -hmm. of control and the violent punishments that are enacted to keep women in those boxes. 
And so we need an analysis of that on an international level. We can give specific examples of here's how it happened here or there, but to really be able to really establish that there's frameworks, there are strategies that are used, and there are strategies women also use to resist. You know, it's it's uh, it's a layered phenomenon. It's <laughs> layer upon layer upon layer of colonizing culture. And, you know, law, custom, religion, all these things that combine family structure, you know, marrying women out. That's a whole big part of it, you know, or marriage by capture. That's sometimes a part of it, you know, and that leads to women being recast as people who can be colonized, who can be enslaved easily. So um, I'm going to be doing more of that as well, just because writing a book with the formatting and the footnotes, I mean, it just takes too long, you know? So more audio and, and more video. Start getting the more of the stream on demand out is the other goal that I have because the visual does have this advantage. It's the real, it's the real evidence. Whatever I may say about it, what other, others may say about it, those young women can look at that and see entirely different ways of being female you know, embodied, stout, strong female bodies who are not posing and simpering. You know, it's a, it's a media culture magnetizes us so, so heavily, you know, especially as we're forming our, our individual personality. Mm -hmm. You know, we they want us crushed within these molds. Mm -hmm. You know, it's all structured around how do I look, you know? And is anybody going to think that I look weird? You know, they just to really be able to stand in the world. That's what the ancient figurines, the ancient female icons are doing. They're standing in their power. They're fully, they're, they're strong. They're broad-shouldered. They're, you know, they just, they're looking out at you, you know, and they're holding power. It's visible in them. And so to be able to be exposed to that and say, this is world history. Women's history is world history. We are culture makers. We have done these things that they have withheld from us knowledge. You know, uh, we desperately need this, this knowledge as medicine for the spirit. So um, that's my goal to, to be able to get as much of that out there as I can. So, you know, I opened up Instagram. I'm finally posting on Instagram. You know, there'll be more YouTube videos. That's the open access side of, of the videos that I'm doing. And pour it out. Just pour it out. Oh, again, Max, I, I really, from the bottom of my heart, really, I, I've talked to a lot of people over four seasons, but this was one of the episodes that I looked forward to the most. And when I reached out to you and you said yes, I immediately texted Dominique because I know that she was also... Uh, a very big fan. So um, thank you again. Thanks for coming. It was my on the pleasure. And, and it's great to meet both of you. So um, I'm going to, uh, if you want to send me your emails, I'll also put you on my mailing list so that you can, I'm okay. going to be doing more podcasts again. I, I, I took, I stopped webcasts for the whole year practically. Okay. But, and the course will start up again um, in 2024. But even if you're not in the course, the monthly webcasts, you can still access Okay. You know, by subscription individually. So if there's one you're interested in that way, you'll know about it. Okay. So, All right. I look forward, I mean, I, I have to, 
I have to figure out, uh, I, I want to listen to more of your programs. I mean, I just loved what you did with the, there was the Brazilian one. I can't remember the title of it anymore. But, oh, was um, Rosa? I know, I know which one you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Slave and to thought, judge Okay, souls. okay. She, she's so, this is good, deep stuff. I mean, I like it when it's like somebody who really has, it's meaty, you know, it's like, it's not all generalization. She's talking about an actual instance and, you know, then analysis of that, you know, and it was right. a valuable story. So I actually posted, I, no, I was going to post it. I need to listen to the whole thing. I'm going to post about it on the Suppress Histories page on Facebook. Yeah, um, her, that her, actually, her podcast, her half of history, I think you'd find really interesting. The woman that I had on the show that did that episode has her own podcast. Right. I'm gonna her, write it her half of history. Okay. Yeah, you know, it's just like, uh, walking, cooking, cleaning the house. That's when I listen to this stuff. But then I have to stop and scribble things down when it's really right. good. Because <laughs> well, you know. So, um, you know, I look forward to seeing the seeing the rest of what you have eventually, or hearing it rather. All right, and Dominique. Who knows what you're going to come up with? We, I'll stay tuned. Uh, yeah, that. we're watching you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you I mean, will. Be. You're our future. <laughs> I will say this, there's a whole new wave happening. I know a lot of young women who wish they were alive in the 70s, you know, because there was this wave, this crest that happened of this this explosion of women's energy, just really in all directions. And then, you know, the backlash that began around the time of the Reagan administration, you know, uh, going forward, we've had backlash and more backlash and more backlash. And women have been constrained and shrunken culturally, you know, even our ability to speak is being challenged in public in, in different ways that um, I'm starting to see a lot of, you know, there's a new young women's movement coming up, you know, that is really hungry for something different than what mass culture has been shoving down all our throats. And so I think what's happening now is you're all just starting to find each other and us. I mean, I don't want to be a separate thing at all. It's just sort of like, we're waiting for you all. And we're like, where are they? How do we find them? We didn't know you existed. That is the wild thing to me. <laughs> we thing didn't for a long time, but but now we do. And I, we know. I, I, know, what, I know what you're saying, Max. I, I see that with, so myself and uh, Lori Davis, the woman who does her half of history and Dr. Carla Ionescu with uh, the Goddess Project podcast and Liz Kelly's podcast home to her we are mm -hmm. all having uh women like you and other women who are are from that the, these foremothers what we consider our foremothers who came up in the 70s goddess spirituality we're now having all of you on our podcasts <laughs> yeah which is yeah. a great well, way know, for us to disseminate this this totally. information. I mean, Karen yeah. Tate's been around since the nineties. I this coming season, I have Marilyn Nyborg and Dale Allen and all of these other women who you know who like knew Carol Christ and <laughs> you yeah. know. So yeah, it's I really I I see the intergenerational thing happening yeah. and feel like I'm in the well, middle of that. But people my age, we're starting to get tired. So now we're looking to people like Dominique to pass on our information that we learned from your generation 
we're passing that down. And we're all still here right now, you know, so it's yeah. just like, let's, let's create a common bowl, you know, yes. let's pass the bowl around, you know, and then that can happen. Yeah. I was able to talk to Louisa Tish and I mentioned, we talked about your work and we were supposed to have Charlene Sprint. Oh, yeah. yeah. Louisa, she's a huge fan and lover of you. Oh, she's, I know. She's just, she's amazing. I've known her for decades. Oh, I know what I was, I was going to think of, um, uh and, and she came out with this new book yes. so you know I was, I was she invited me to be part of that i was very honored by that um there's a new movie out by somebody named laura hirsch german filmmaker and i've just watched there's the first three episodes of it are out so i was interviewed it's actually about four mothers of the women's spirituality movement and i just watched the the episode two is on maria gimbutas and it's it's so good you know, it's about her life, but it's also about the backlash against her. And Charlene Spretnak especially throws down about the way they treated her and how they locked her out. And, you know, she's very, I mean, she wrote a great article about that as well, which I always recommend to people. But anyway, um, that's... And, 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 that's and we are reading Maria Gimbucha's Now, uh-huh. who I didn't know existed before, I don't know, six, seven years ago so well, most people yeah yeah so you know and and really what's happening is a whole constellation of women you know like i mean i mentioned robin wall kimmerer and then there's there's just so many from so many different cultural directions i mean louisa holds ground and has for a long time for african-american women's spirituality she she studied with Catherine dunham who was part of this whole afrocentric dance movement reclamation you know that really had a lot even aligned to uh zora neale hurston you know there was like this underground search of african-american women who wanted to reclaim and what they found was the ceremonial culture the dance the incantation you know a lot of those women made ocha and joined the lukumi uh, tradition or other african religions but um there's just so much in in uh in my lesbian feminist world I knew one African-American from Philly and another Af- uh, Puerto Rican woman from the Bronx who were both butches who played conga and they had grown ar- up around the drumming. So there was a period in the early 70s of this very male chauvinist attitude of, no, in Africa, women don't drum. You're supposed to stand respectfully behind men drum, you know, and they were not having that at all. They they just go in there and they throw down with their congas and the men realized they could really drum so they got you know they they made their way in yes you know there's just so many aspects to uh, women's spirituality that all these different cultural expressions of it you know for women of many heritages and so that's something that you know we're going to continue to see more books being published you know from native voices and not about native history but from native sources you know, and that's going to be invaluable. It already is. You know, there's already a bunch of. So thank right. you. And I uh, look forward to, uh, you know, hearing from you when it's all ready. And uh, we meet again sometime. We will. We will. I will be in touch. Uh, and I will talk to you, Dominique. But until then, I. I wish both of you the love and the peace of the goddess. 
All right, ladies. Thank you. Okay, ciao, babies. Thanks for watching or listening to The Girlfriend God. Don't forget to like, rate, review, subscribe, follow, and comment. Episodes drop every Saturday morning at 8 a.m. And you can follow The Girlfriend God on social media on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook.